Today I want to uh, speak uh, about something that is very important, very integral in our lives. And uh, so the title of my study today is simply No Law, No Gospel. Because where there is no law, there is no need for a gospel. Because what man has done inherently within himself is offend a holy God. And the only way that we can be redeemed from our offenses is through a perfect sacrifice. And thus God had to send his son to be that sacrificial lamb for you and I. The destiny of the natural man is fixed. The mortal body with its propensities towards sin and destruction will one day be placed in the grave as its final destination. This marks the end of life or a life riddled with temptation that has caused much suffering for the one who is in Christ. The Apostle Paul says the following about this truth that awaits each individual. He says this at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. And we read, I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the imperishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is in sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And this is one thing we must always focus on, is that even in the most difficult times in our lives, we pursue the will of God. We look to his commands that he has given us to follow. And then we embrace them. And then we work them out in our lives. There is going to be a time when death no longer has any effect upon us. And we all look forward to that glorious time when we'll spend eternity with our God. While the Christian travels through this time of existence in this world, He will show glimpses of the Savior. For the Christian has been born again, and the new life of Christ now dwells or lives within him. However, the same person is not yet perfected. We all have to remember this one truth. None of us are perfected in Christ at this point. And so with each one, as we interact with one another, there must be grace. There must be mercy. As God has bestowed mercy upon us, we must bestow mercy upon one another. This we must conclude and seek to understand. We come to church in our Sunday best, and at times we can put on a show or act as if we have already been perfected, or we can act as if we have it all together. But the scriptures deny the very show that we seek to present. In this 1 Corinthians 15 text, Paul testifies that We have a decaying member within us. Yes, a decaying member that is dying. A member that is still with us. A member that is perishing. And this member must finally be put to rest. For this member cannot inherit the kingdom of God, as Paul puts it in verse 50. For this member is flesh and blood. This member is flesh and blood. 
It is that man or that corrupted man that still has residency within us. This man must be put to death and be changed, that the new man, the man who is incorruptible, or that man who is born after the likeness of Christ, may live eternally in the kingdom of God. Thus, when we gather together on the Lord's Day, we must understand that we are gathering as Christians, and we praise the Lord for this. However, each one of us are still subject to temptation. Is there anyone that here that is not still subject to temptation? Please raise your hand. <laughs> I did think so. We are all still subject to temptation, and each one of us will continue to not only struggle with sin, but at times, you know, we will determine to sin. Desire will conceive. It will give birth to sin. And as James says, when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. This is a battle that continues between that which is spirit, or that which has been born again, and that which is flesh, or, or that which is decaying, that which in the resurrection of the dead will be changed from an unrighteous condition to a righteous condition. No Christian is exempt from this. We all carry this monkey on our backs, and only physical death death will relieve us from the battle that we have with him. Perhaps you have seen, we all have seen, a piece of bare metal which is left out in the elements, right? If you watch this piece of metal over time, you will notice that it begins to rust, and as it is left outside in the elements, the rust continues to move on the object until in time the entire object is consumed with the rust. This is what sin is doing to the old man. It is rusting him out. It is having its way with him and the result of the sin that exists within us will eventually kill the natural man and place him in the grave. We're all on the fast track to get to this place with some moving much faster than others. The moral of the story is that sin kills and as we practice sin, sin will kill the old man that much quicker, specifically the Christian. The Christian can often be troubled when the unbeliever experiences world prosperity. But the scriptures never insist that the Christian will experience world prosperity. Some will experience worldly prosperity and others simply will not. But the Lord will test our resolve as well as our contentment by allowing others to prosper when we seem not to be. But should we be troubled when others prosper in worldly ways? I believe the scriptures teach in the negative in regard to this type of a worldly, prosperous mindset. In fact, this could be a departure from faith in some circumstances. Think about it. There are many of non-believers in the world that prosper tremendously. And then there are Christians who do not. But we must understand that with God, we are each a tool in his hand to work out his will, how he wants to work his will out. And we should not contend with that. We should seek to be contentment because contentment before the Lord will produce much gain for you and I. Whereas the scriptures do teach us about success, they do not teach us to pursue worldly means of success. Worldly prosperity may come, and we should be thankful to God and recognize that he brings all good things. As James 1 tells us, all good things come from above and come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So as we experience good in our lives, we must be thankful to him for bringing the good that we experience. But I do not see how a Christian can labor so in this area, for he has been given the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ seeks to do one thing, and that is to bring pleasure to the Father. Consider the following text. 
in Matthew 6, starting at verse 24. Verse 24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you know, this is, this is where we see where we are in our Christian walks. If we are provoked from day to day to bring pleasure to our God, we are walking in the same path as Jesus walked. But if we seek from day to day to please ourselves, to please man, we are simply not walking in a way that is bringing pleasure to our God. Yes, we want to be at peace with all men, but not at the expense of our pleasure that we are to bring before our God. He goes on in verse 2, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? I'm sorry, that was verse 25, not verse 2. Sorry about that. Verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet yet your heavenly Father feeds them. What are you saying is they they live from day to day. Right? They, They need substance from day to day. They don't have anything to gather all their food into, but they just live from day to day. I think there's a a message here for you and I in this, that God will put us in a position at times where we can't do anything because we don't have the resources to do anything. We must trust that God will provide for us. He goes on to say, are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? All these things are the things that we're in need of, right? Not the things that we want. Yes, there will be times when the Lord gives us things that we want. You know, he is a good God, and, and sometimes he chooses to do that. But in context, he, he is talking about the needs that we have, the needs that we have, and he has promised to always take care of those needs. Needless to say, but the following needs to be said, so we are reminded of the condition that God has delivered us from. And that is this. Without Christ, we are first me-pleasers, and secondly, we are man-pleasers. Once we are born again, God begins to teach us by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we can no longer be me-pleasers and man-pleasers, but to enter the kingdom of God, we must be God-pleasers. Anything less than this will keep us from experiencing the kingdom of God. In the me-pleaser, man-pleaser condition, we find ourselves at enmity with God, or in other words, we are his enemy. The good thing that God bestows upon you and I is, as a born-again individual, he now has re- he, he now, excuse me, has granted us the ability to be God-pleasers. Where before we were, we probably didn't know it. We would never say we were against God, but yet we were antagonistic towards him. 
if God, God's will comes against my will, then I'm turning and going in the other direction. We even see that in the church today. We see that in John 6, when Jesus said some things that his followers did not like. What did they do? They turned and they left. We don't want to find ourselves in that position. And as we seek to to grow in God's grace, as we read his word, as we seek to understand it, he, he will show us his will for us. <clears throat> God, in simple terms, has performed a spiritual surgery on each one of us, each one of his children, each one of us who he has called to be his own. <clears throat> he has taken out the heart of stone and has inserted a heart of flesh. Or a heart that now finds itself in a condition where it can communicate with God. Where before, with a stony heart, we could not. This is called regeneration. We have heard this word used a lot, and specifically from those in reform circles or from those who would embrace Calvinism. But I want to pause a bit here to examine the word and seek to understand its meaning or how it's defined. Noah Webster, in his 1828 edition of his dictionary, describes the word in this way. Regeneration means reproduction. The act of producing a new. In theology, new birth by the grace of God, that change by which the will and natural enmity of man to God, there he says it, the will and natural enmity of man to God, or that antagonistic position that we have before God and his law are subdued. They're changed. Why? Because of work that God has done within us. And a principle of supreme love to God and his law. A principle of supreme love to God and his law. As David said in Psalm 19, 7, Oh, how I love your law. What has happened today in the church? We no longer love the uh, law of God. As if it's something just menial, it was there for a time, but we no longer need it. But I'm here to tell you today, if there is no law, there would be no sin. There would be no trespass of the law. There would be no conviction of the Spirit and therefore there would be no need for a Savior. We have trespassed the law of God, and therefore we have need of a Redeemer. He goes on to finish his definition. Regeneration gives us holy affections, and they are implanted within the heart. So our affections are now towards God. Our affections are turned from the man in the mirror and everything he wants to do in life is turned to God. Our affections are now on God. We want to bring pleasure to him. How can we do anything else if truly we have been given the life of Christ? As Paul says, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And what did Christ want to do when he walked this earth? Bring pleasure to his Father. Obey all of his commands. These were his marching orders before his Father. And he obeyed them to the T. Is this our desire? Is this our desire to show Christ to our generation? I go, we'll study in our study in this afternoon. Is it our desire to be faithful to his call? God has always been faithful to us. There's never been any other individual in our lives, our mother, our father, our, our spouse, our children, no one that has been perfectly faithful to us, but God has. some within evangelical Christian circles, but outside those who would believe that God's grace provides everything that we need for one to repent and believe would disagree with Mr. Webster's 
definition. They would add another step, and that step would insist that God would not violate man's free will to believe by himself, by his own volition, with no part of grace being involved. But that man believes outside of God's grace, and then God allows the man to be born again because a man wants to be born again. I tell you, this is a 20th century phenomenon. You look back before the 20th century, you never saw teaching like this. These would believe that man has full control over the matter of his own salvation, which the Bible nowhere supports. Nowhere does the Bible state that man has control over his own destiny. Nowhere, show me. Thus man is lost in a condition where in and of himself he has no resolve for the matter. Man outside of God loves his sin. He embraces it. And he'll embrace it until his dying breath. Unless God has enacted a change in the man or the spiritual surgery that we just spoke about. In his sermon, The Necessity of Regeneration, Charles Spurgeon says the following. He says, The graces which appear at the very dawn of the gospel in the heart are totally above the reach of man. It's like everything has been exposed now. I had this wall that, that prohibited me from seeing anything of God's grace. And now that wall has been torn apart. And now... God has brought me into communication with him through his spirit. He has moved me from just a natural man to now a spiritual man. And now I can embrace and understand the things of God, which before I could not. Spurgeon goes on to say, the gospel says, repent. The unregenerate man loves his sins and will not repent of them. He presses them to his bosom. And until his nature is changed, he will never look at them with abhorrence and sorrow. The gospel says, believe, cast away all confidence in your own merits and believe in Jesus. But the carnal mind is proud. And it says, why should I believe? (coughs) Excuse me. And be saved by the works of another. I want to do something myself so that I may have some of the credit for it, either by good feelings or good prayers or good works of some kind. Repentance and faith are distasteful to the unregenerate. They would sooner repeat a thousand formal prayers than shed a solitary tear of true repentance. They would sooner work their way to heaven, even if they had to pass through hell itself to get there then come and simply receive salvation for nothing as the gift of God by Jesus Christ. Brethren, we must be born again because the truth of the gospel cannot be understood and the commands of the gospel cannot be obeyed except where the Spirit of God regenerates the heart of man. Close quote. I think Spurgeon drives the nail to its final resting place when he says that the truth of the gospel cannot be understood and the commands of the gospel cannot be obeyed except where the Spirit of God regenerates the heart. Do we believe that here today? Do we believe that it takes an act of God that we may understand the things of God. We must. We must. If we veer off that track, we are veering off into a man-centered religion. Man left in his sin can do nothing but sin. 
It is not in his nature to do anything else. But when he is born again, the man is immediately changed. And now he finds himself with a new mind to understand, new eyes to see, new ears to listen, and a new tongue now created to bring honor to God. As Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible. And if it takes God to grant us faith, everything before faith is granted is without faith. And therefore, it is sin. Many, most would not believe that. But at this point, the man will be tested to see if he is truly gold or just a flesh fabric fabricated alloy that looks similar to gold on the outside, but whose contents will prove him to be otherwise. Have we seen that in people who have told us they come to church, they embrace the faith, but only for a time and then they're gone. They are the alloy. They are, they are what has been fabricated to look like a Christian on the outside. But as they walk in the faith and they go through trials and testing, they prove that they're not a child of the faith after all. <clears throat> We've all seen this, I'm sure. And the testing will surely come Our testing is designed by God to produce and prove Christ's likeness within us and nothing else. This process will prove the validity of the new nature of the spiritual man or the reality of the natural man that still exists. This is a process of separating the sheep from the goats, which is important when considering the condition of the church today. When conforming our lives to the will of God does not seem to be much of a priority. But this has been the norm for many decades, generations, where the visible church seems, not only seems, it does, it conforms itself to that which society is doing or dictating rather than the church being the beacon to bring others into the light so that they can see the truth found in the gospel. If we truly want to understand this battle that we have within ourselves as Christians, we will study with intent the book of Romans, but specifically Paul's struggle as he, as he goes through and he writes Romans 7. In Romans 7, Paul speaks of the disparity between the natural man and the spiritual man that are conflicted within him. I'm going to fight you. Well, I'm going to fight you. And we're going to see who's going to come out on top on the end. Fists are going to be flying in this battle. The battle ensues to the point where Paul says that he hates that which he does. Why do I keep doing this? I hate it. He knows better, as do we, because our minds as the learner, as Paul says, Romans 12, we have been taught what is right and acceptable before God. But acting this out is quite another issue, as we all know. Paul says in Romans 7 that because of the goodness, because of the goodness of the law, the law is good. Because of the goodness of the law, the badness of sin has been exposed. Because of the goodness of the law, the badness of sin has been exposed. No law, no need for a gospel. No law, no sin, no trespass, no need for a savior. The law is important. Paul says this 
at verse 9 in Romans 7. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Sin came alive and I was undone like this humongous beacon of light on me now, exposing my sin. That's what the law did to him. Exposed the man for who he really was. God showing him that now he was in need of something. Paul sees his sin and he's in need of something. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It killed me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law, the law, the law. Verse 12, so the law is holy. God is holy. What comes from God is holy. God is holy. His law is holy. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, the spotlight's on me now. I'm undone. I'm naked before God. How do I reconcile this before God? How do I reconcile my sin? my displeasure before him, my enmity before him. He says in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he qualifies that. He says, that is in my flesh. Right? For I have the desire to do what is right in my mind. I know what is right. But in my flesh, not the ability to carry it out. I need something more. For I do not, for I do, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Do you ever have that experience, right? Where you're just rolling along with God and everything is going great. And Satan says, Larry, look over here, right? What does the Bible call that? The sin that easily besets us, right? Is that true? I'm doing great. I'm doing all all the right things. I'm walking in the life of Christ and then boom, Here's a temptation. And my flesh is, my flesh wants to move towards it. But the Spirit is saying, no, Larry, you can't, you know that is wrong. So what ensues? The bare-knuckle fight, right? The bare-knuckle fight. This over here. We can help this condition by not making provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh. And if there is anything in our lives, like, you know, my dad, my dad used to have 
certain magazines laying around. And I became a Christian. God pulled me to himself. I was born again. But I knew probably in my dad's truck there was a bad magazine. I, I knew it. I knew it. My flesh was drawn to it. To the point where I had to say, I cannot fight this struggle. I need to destroy that. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. And I told my dad, Dad, quit bringing these things home. I said, you bring them home, I'm going to destroy them. <clears throat> we can't make any provision for our flesh. Do you have anything in your homes that your flesh wants to run to? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. What does God hate? Feet that run towards evil. Right? But if you have nothing to run toward, <laughs> it's gone. Right? But we got to keep working on this because it could pop up again. Right? Romans 7 is a summary of the benefits of the law and grace. <clears throat> and without Romans 7, we may find the law a bit difficult to understand. Some in the church would say that the law does not apply to the Christian, but with the law comes, but with the law comes the knowledge of sin. No law, no sin. God has given us his law. His holy law that comes from perfection. He is perfection. He is holy. And his law is perfect and holy. We just read that in Romans 7, verse 12. God's law is holy and righteous and good. It's the reflection of his character, his nature, his will for us. Why would we call it bad? Why would we be antagonistic towards his law. Some in the church would say that the law does not apply to us, but with the law comes the knowledge of sin. As Paul says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, apart from God's grace, could Paul or anyone else, for that matter, understand the purpose of the law? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think not, for the law has a purpose, and that is to show the individual their sin. Once sin has been revealed, man is shown to be guilty, and nothing else but God's mercy can save him. For the law kills the man, and the only thing that can now spare man... From imminent doom is God's saving grace. However, the person outside of Christ cannot see this clearly, for he has not been given the eyes to see the truth of the matter. And he has not been given a new mind to understand the matter. He is still lost in his sin. And thus, I believe that in Romans 7, Paul is talking about the new man. The new man, Paul, and not the old man, Saul. For Paul had been given eyes to see and a new mind to understand God's truth. And now the battle is, has been engaged. The battle, the spirit, and the flesh, the bare-knuckle fight that comes upon each one of us. From perfection... Perfection is born because that which is perfect does not have the nature to perform anything but perfection. God is perfect. He is holy. His law is perfect. It is holy. It is righteous. And it is good. As Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 7 of Romans. <clears throat> so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy and the, com and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because the fount that it has come from is holy and righteous and good. 
or the law perfectly represents the nature, the character, and the will of God. Do we believe that? What do I think what, one of the major problems in the church is today? We despise the law of God. But Paul said it's holy, righteous, and good. So why would we despise it? We don't understand the scripture, I guess. And Jesus perfectly demonstrated this very perfection as he walked the earth with his words also testifying to the perfection of the law. When he said in Matthew 5 at verse 17, the following with authority. And when we speak of the word of God, we got to speak the word with authority like we actually believe it. Do you agree? He says this at verse 17, Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Because until that time, the law still has a purpose. Therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know that if the Pharisees were one thing, they were abusers of the law of God. They were abusers of the law of God. They altered, they modified, they changed the law of God and expected the people to follow their modified version. We must be careful in our presentation of the gospel. The gospel does not free anyone from the purpose of the law. Now, the law is integral to the gospel as it indicts man as guilty before a holy God and therefore shows him his need of the Savior's sacrifice for his sin. Our presentation of the gospel should never only include an invitation to accept Jesus. Kind of like, hey, meet my my uncle Rudy. He's a great guy and he'll help you. This is much of what we hear from the pulpits today across the world is that Jesus, like a medical doctor, he's going to come in and he's going to help you and he's going to repair some things. No, that's simply not true. He's, he's going to kill you and invest his life in you. He's going to completely change you. I'm not sure what an invitation to receive Jesus is supposed to achieve. As Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away before the most minute part of the law is taken away. Heaven and earth will pass away before the most minute part of the law is abdicated. The law's purpose will not be complete until the last individual who is destined to repent of his sin repents of his sin. So please do not buy into the current trend that the law has no use. 
One may as well say that God has no use for his law is a perfect reflection of his nature and will. So if his law has no use, you know, he is holy and righteous and good, and his law is holy and righteous and good because it's a perfect reflection of him. Why do we hold on to God if we're not going to hold on to his law? More evidence is found in the scripture as we consider the Holy Spirit's place in salvation. In John 16, Jesus is informing his disciples that he will soon be departing. And he knows that this will cause a level of sorrow in them. And so he informs them that he will send the Holy Spirit. And please turn with me to John 16. John 16, and at the first verse, verse 1, Jesus says the following. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. What what, what he's saying here is for you, it's going to get desperate. You're not going to like this. But let me tell you what's going to happen to you. And you'll be tempted to walk away. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. I've got to shut the mouth of this guy. He is not properly representing God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour, excuse me, fly away paper. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You would remember that they are coming. I have told you, I have warned you. They are coming. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper... He will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because a ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not, <coughs> excuse me, not speak of his own authority, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We see in this text that the Holy Spirit's purpose is to convict the world of sin, right? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. But what would the Spirit's purpose be if the law did not exist? How could the Spirit convict us of sin if the law did not tell us what sin was? When we think a bit deeper about this, the same applies for the Father and Jesus. For without God's law, there would be no such thing as sin. 
And if there is no such thing as sin, there is nothing for the Spirit to convict the world of, and thus there is no need for a Savior. God had a very specific plan. He put a man and a woman in a garden. They sinned. That sin fell upon the end. Not only man, not only his heritage, but it fell on the entire creation. Look around you. Some of these trees that are green, they're brown too because they're dying. So the sin of Adam fell upon the entire creation. So there had to be redemption because now, and it's exemplified when Adam was sown out of the garden, there was a separation between God and man. And the only way that separation could be bridged was by a perfect sacrifice, an unblemished lamb, the lamb who would come, who would take the world's sin upon his shoulders and bear it, the full brunt of God's wrath on the back of the Savior. So when we consider the purpose of the law, its purpose is integral to the message of the cross. For without it, the cross simply has no purpose. In my upcoming sermons, I will dig into the purpose of the law a bit deeper. How it subdues sinful behavior and why it still has a purpose in the life of the Christian. Please pray with me. And Father, we thank you. We want to agree, as David said, (laughs) I love your law. Oh, your law is been the very catalyst to show me my sin and my need for the Savior. Oh God, help us to understand, understand your word in such a way that brings honor to you. And Father, we thank you now for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.